How do you define curiosity? Can it make us happier? Does curiosity have style? I'm Bonku, the host of Design Lab. It's a show where we explore the question how might we design healthier lives? We have two amazing guests today. Perry Zern is an associate professor of philosophy at American University and the author of Curiosity and Power The Politics of Inquiry. Danny S. Bassett is a professor of bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania and received the MacArthur Fellowship, aka Genius Award, in 2014. They are both the authors of Curious Minds, The Power of Connection, which is going to be released in September of this year. We love when you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but we even love it more when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Recently, Deke Bowman left us a great review. Deke described our podcast like finding an oasis in the desert. That made my day when I heard that review. Thank you so much, Deke. If you haven't done so already, give us five stars. Leave us a review. Tell a friend about the show. Now here's my conversation with Perry and Danny. Perry and Danny, welcome to Design Lab. Thrilled to be here. Thanks. It's so exciting to be here. This is the first time we've had identical twins on the show. So this is super cool. And yes. Yeah. We're I, excited to have worked together. This is a real, we've just struck some luck really that, that we get to be academics together and write books together now. And I was thinking about a way to intro your book. It's like a philosopher and a physicist walk into a bar to write a book on curiosity <laughs> And they also happen to be identical twins. What was the inspiration for writing your book, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection? Yeah. So I think that what happened is that we were very excited about how the mind works, but from very different perspectives. So Perry, as a philosopher, focuses on understanding sort of the history of, of how thought has been imagined and how questions have been imagined and how curiosity has been imagined. And I'm coming from it, the field more from a neuroscience perspective and a physics perspective to say, how is the mind actually constructed? Well, by which I mean, how is the brain constructed? Mm -hmm. And then how is it that we create mental spaces and networks of, of information inside of our minds that allows us to think differently. So it sort of came together as realizing that both of us are really excited about this space of the mind and the mind's questions, but from very different academic perspectives. And there were certainly moments in which the two of us walked into a bar <laughs> to discuss this book. <laughs> oh, awesome. And I realized when reading your book, I use this word curiosity a lot and I label people as curious or not curious. I think of myself as a curious person, but then I came to this realization, I don't really understand what curiosity is after reading your book. For our listeners, how would you define curiosity? If that's too big of a question to start off with, maybe what is not curiosity? Yeah, I mean, this is part of what's driven me to curiosity as a topic. You know, philosophers, one of the things we love to do is we love to find things in the world, things in our everyday conversation that people just sort of assume. And then we love to just pause, right? Philosophy is a lot about pausing. Okay, what do we really mean by that? And what is it really doing in the world? And what might we want to mean? And what might we want it to do? And curiosity is one of these, one of these, whereas, you know, especially if you're Working in any sort of business sector, academia, that you know, the term curiosity is just thrown around as obviously something we all want, we all like, we all do, whatever. And so it was a perfect 
topic to practice this pausing and say, what even is this thing, especially given our respective expertise in sort of the history of, of especially Western intellectual thought, and then obviously network and neuroscience. So what we propose in this book is that for the most part, curiosity has been defined in an acquisitional manner, by which we mean curiosity has been thought of as a desire to get something, to get knowledge, to get information, to answer a question. Well, we think that really misses something fundamental about what curiosity is. Danny, I don't know if you want to speak to that. Yeah. So I think that what it is missing is the capacity for us to bridge different pieces of information. So to connect them up together with one another. If we simply acquire information, that doesn't provide us with a function for like what the information can do. So it doesn't give us a lot of understanding of the affordance that curiosity has for us. So thinking more about a connectional approach to curiosity, how do we connect one piece of information to another piece of information allows us to say more clearly what curiosity does for us. And I think that's important because there is a lot of evidence from the scientific literature that curiosity is linked to things that we want, like happiness mm. and innovation. These are two phenomena that are really highly desirable from many human cultures and societies, right? So curiosity is correlated with flourishing and also with physical activity. It's anti-correlated with depression. Mm. There's also evidence that curious people are innovative people who have the capacity to be world changers by imagining the world in a different way. So what we would like to do is to understand what curiosity really is, because by understanding it, we might better be able to support it in ourselves and in others. So would we be able to enhance it in ourselves? Mm. If we grew in curiosity, would we flourish more personally? Would we be more innovative? Would we imagine different futures and then make them happen? So that's really what's driving us. So being curious is more than just being fascinated about a topic, going to Google, searching about it, and learning more about it. It is more than that. It's what we build in our minds as we do that. And build together, right? So this is also a lot of the book does kind of stay within the mind and the brain. But any, as we argue, anytime you go into the brain, you're, you're going to have to come back out and talk about society too. Because mm -hmm. what happens in our minds is deeply informed by and in turn informs our social relations and, and what we all do together. So what we can build in our minds, curiosity is relevant to what we can build in our minds, but also what we can build outside in the world. Mm -hmm. There's so many great quotes from your book. I want to read one of them. You say, the uncanny familiarity of our story stems from an uncomfortable fact. Curiosity is policed everywhere. What does that mean? Curiosity is policed? Let's talk about that. Yeah, that's a really great pull. So, I mean, we both sort of grew up in a very small world environment in a rural area, and there were many assumptions that were built into our sort of family structure and neighborhood structure that limited what it was we could think or know. Mm. And for both of us, that was sort of blown open around the time we went to college. But in one sense, that's a unique story. There's not all that many folks who have that sort of experience. But in another sense, that's a story for everyone. I think everyone and everywhere they are inherit certain ways of thinking about things based on where they were born, kind of how they grew up, what kind of cultural influences they have, what's going on in, in media, et cetera. And those 
inherited ways of thinking constrain the ways each of us pursues our questions just naturally. Mm. And in one sense, that's great. That's part of how the human mind can be a little bit more efficient, right? If every time we tried to think of something, we had to consider all possible options and all possible angles, we would never get started. So one of the useful things about our own way of working as, as humans is that we, we do kind of settle into certain tracks. That limits, though, the things that, that we can ultimately do. And so we need to, we argue that we need to keep coming back in particular moments to opening back up. Well, should we keep thinking about it that way? Should we keep doing it that way? And we use the strong word policed here because that is, in fact, something that happens around knowledge, right? There are ways of thinking correctly that are certainly passed down and inherited. But even if it's not policed in any overt kind of oppressive way, there's certainly just everyday ways in which the way we think is limited and constrained and constantly starts settling down. And we just want to say, let's not settle down too much. Let's keep coming open. Mm. I have felt a little bit of this policing and this constraint myself because like you, I'm, I'm in academics and I feel that academics polices me and constrains me. If It feels like I'm forced into this one box of domain expertise. And then when I try to step out of that box, they're like, no, 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 go back in. <laughs> and and even with, I'm a physician, so I chose my specialty of emergency medicine, which is a blending of many different specialties. So I'm a generalist at, at heart. And even, even when I chose my undergraduate major, I was, I was at Penn and I did classical studies, but then I went to medical school and less than 5% of medical school matriculants are humanities majors. So I've always felt like very curious about other disciplines, but I felt like, no, you got to have to stay in your own lane and build up a very specific domain expertise. Yeah. Danny, do you want to talk about interdisciplinarity a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that your experience is something that's very common across academia, that there are there are structures in place that would say, this is a discipline. This is how you should think in that discipline. These are the questions you can ask in that discipline. These are the questions you can't ask in that discipline. These are the ways you can't think in that discipline. And I think that interdisciplinary work, like what we've done in this book, but also perhaps what you did when you moved from classical studies to emergency medicine, is something that opens up you know, you start realizing these frustration points of, you know, how, why can't I ask it that way in this discipline? Mm. Why can't I ask this question over here? And I think that those points of frustration in a physical sense or friction, I guess maybe I would say, open up new spaces that I think allow for progress in scientific discovery and progress in the humanities too. One provocative theme of your book that resonated with me is you know, where does curiosity come from? Does it just come from our brain or does it come from other places? And, and you all take a deep dive into that in different sections of the book. Can you talk about where does curiosity come from? Sure. In this focus of the book, we are slightly frustrated with the ways in which people think about curiosity as simply some kind of light bulb that goes off in each one of us separately, mm -hmm. as if our curiosity were entirely individual, sort of, and our questions were our own in some truly fundamental and originary way, right? Well, I just wanted to know that. And the more, obviously, the more we live in this sort of world we have today, and the more we understand about how advertisements work and how algorithmic searches work, et cetera, et cetera, we know that the questions we have, the things we want to know, those things that we want to Google, deeply informed by the world around us and by the questions other people either have had or 
think we probably should have or have paid to help us have. And so I think curiosity is one of these elements that folks think, you know, it's just kind of a personality trait. It's just something about me, but really it's kind of everywhere. And therefore what we want to start paying attention to is how is it that questions are actually generated and shared? What is the economy of questions or what is the network of questions that really both is rooted in the brain, but also stretches well outside, right? Through social networks as well. Hmm. Danny, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, just another point maybe that's related to this is that going back to something that you said earlier, there, you know, we often think that, you know, there's curiosity is one thing or nothing, and that somebody is either curious or not curious. And we kind of think about it in this one dimensional way. But I think that what we also are trying to do in the book is to sort of open that and say, what are the diverse ways in which people can be curious? It's not, are you curious or not curious? It's in what ways are you curious? And by that, we can get a little bit deeper and say, you know, what are the mental structures that we make in our minds, which leads to really interesting design questions then. Like, how do we design structures in our minds? I'd love to talk about that at some point, maybe. But Yeah, yeah. And you talk about curiosity having style. Yes. In one section of the book, what does that mean? Curiosity has style. I, we really believe that there are different styles of curiosity that there are, and that in some sense, they are styles we can put on in a day and take off in a day. Curiosity, again, isn't just this one thing shown in this one way, but in fact, some people are curious in a particular way, in a particular manner shows up. So a lot of folks like to know a lot about a lot of different things. And that's primarily how their curiosity functions. Other people know, like to know a lot about one specific thing, right? Or one or two specific things. And they really, they do that deep dive. They stay there. They don't, we're not really interested in a whole lot else. Is that the hunter style? That's the hunter style, the focused <laughs> okay. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the more generalist sort of, I like to know a lot about all sorts of things. You know, tell me anything. That's a busybody style, which is an older word, but it's, it shows up in the, a lot of the literatures on this. And then the third style we talk about is the dancer, which is someone who's far more creative and practices their curiosity by taking two different things or more than two things and putting them together and saying, why not? What would happen if I put these together? What would happen if I thought this together? So we, we present these three styles and, and we've done some further experimental research with them that Denny might like to talk about. But we also, at the very, very end of the book, we talk about there must be more than three, right? And we end up turning to the natural world, specifically animals and insects, and try to say, hey, what kind of curiosity do they manifest? And what might that show us about our own practices too? Yeah. And I think when we're talking about style, it immediately makes me think about sort of styles of clothing that you can you know, put on or take off. It also then makes me think about fashion design, perhaps, or is there a way a very concrete way in which we design our minds in some mm. sense. So by asking certain questions or maybe pursuing certain interests, we create these knowledge networks in our heads and we could ask, what are those like in each of us? Are they very ordered and rigid, kind of like a scaffold on the side of a building, right? Or are they completely haphazard and a bit crazy, like the construction of a child with like toothpicks and marshmallows to stick them together, right? So maybe are they expandable like a medical stent able to slot into a small space and then expand outward to fill a larger space? You can ask questions like, can they walk? Can they move? Can they dance? And this actually reminds me of this, this really wonderful bit from Nietzsche's Gay Science, where he's talking about 
how people think and the kinds of thinkers that he really wants to see in the future. You know, he goes on in a very poetic way. And at the very end, he says something like, you know, the first questions that we ask about a, a book or of a person or even of a musical composition is, can they walk even more? Can they dance? So what is it that mm -hmm. they can kind of do in a movement sense? And I am very, I think when we're talking about curiosity, we are talking about what is it that we are building in our minds that allows us to sort of dance conceptually? Does a scaffold dance on the side of a building? Do these toothpicks and marshmallow constructions really dance? One of the examples that we talk about in the book is actually some sculptures from Theo Jansen. They're called Strand Beasts, and they're network constructions very similar to scaffolds and stents and toothpicks with marshmallows, but they're made out of thin plastic pieces of tubing that are then connected up with one another. He puts them on the beach and when the ocean wind kind of blows across them, it makes them move in a way where they look as if they're animals, as if they're sort of moving across the beach like an animal moving across the beach. That's why they're called strand beasts because that translates to kind of beach animals. Mm. But I think that when we're talking about curiosity and this connective way in which it works as a style, we are basically imagining that our minds are like strand beasts with these bits of knowledge connected up together in a way that responds to the winds of our environment. And so you can ask questions like, how do you design that sculpture in your mind such that when the wind blows, you can walk or maybe you can dance? I love this thread here of, can we design our minds to be more curious? <laughs> yes. How? Where do we start? Do we Are we redesigning our systems of education or can we personally make practical design decisions throughout the day to be more curious? I'm curious to know. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that we've talked about is, and Danny, you've mentioned this before, but that in the strand beast, it's important that some things are not connected, right? The connections that do exist in the beast are what allow it to move, but also the certain lack of connections, right? If there were too many pieces of it connected in too many ways, it wouldn't be able to move in in response to and with the wind. So one of the ways in which we might design a mind, a more curious mind, is by sort of embracing the certain lack of answers, right? Spaces in which we don't know things, spaces that we haven't filled with knowledge already, and later in the book, we talk about cracks and how important, you know, we've, we've spent the whole book talking about connection, connecting, connecting, connecting up all the pieces of information and the relationships. But it matters, too, that those connections break at certain points and that there are connections that simply aren't there. And we kind of sit with that openness. Yeah. In a sense, this connects up to a really interesting literature in neuroscience and psychology on cognitive rigidity. And, you know, what you want as you're building in your mind, your spaces of knowledge and, and belief and understanding is you want to make sure that you're not too cognitively rigid in the sense that you mm -hmm. are able to, you know, you're open to seeing things you've known before in a new way, right? Mm -hmm. Open to questioning what you thought you knew and always, always being willing to break a connection or to dismiss a previous understanding when, when you realize it's no longer useful for you or for society. <laughs> so I think being open to that change is really important. Being open to like these ambiguous spaces is something that ironically, I feel that academics don't do as we go deeper, deeper into our domain expertise. We don't want to leave the safety 
of certainty and our knowledge base. Do you feel that's true with your different academic disciplines or in the way that what you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how many times folks have said, well, we just don't ask that question or we just don't do it that way. But I remember actually when I first proposed to write a dissertation on curiosity, um, one of my advisors says, well, nobody else has written a book on that. So, you know, <laughs> so I just thought, well, great. <laughs> That's good news. <laughs> but for them, it was sort of like, ah, no one really cares. That's like not a thing we talk about which is just weird, right? Especially if, if you think the heart of academia is really is really to ask these questions and to walk into these landscapes of the mind that are just full of wonder and full of the unknown. How is it that we become so pedantic sometimes? Yeah, That's funny. I had a really similar experience in the first article that I wrote as a graduate student. And I had two supervisors, one in physics and one in neuroscience. And the physics professor, when he read my first draft, he said, oh, well, this doesn't read like a physics article. And then the neuroscientist, when he read the first draft, he's like, this doesn't read like a neuroscience <laughs> article either. <laughs> so what does that mean? I don't know. At the end of the book, you talk about the loss of curiosity in our education system and have thoughts on redesigning our educational system to make us more curious and to make room for neuroatypical learners. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Once we have sort of set up that curiosity is this way of connecting ideas and people, if you enter into a classroom space and you start to think that each of us has these different styles of learning, styles of curiosity, and that we come in there with already built different styled architectures of knowledge, how then do we get to work learning together if we have all of that difference? And one of the, I think this is a helpful way to start thinking about neurotypicality and learning differences of all sorts. If you already connect information in a particular way, that needs to have room to work. Otherwise, you will not be seen by your professor, by your other, or your teacher, or your other, you know, fellow students as curious. Mm. If you're not seen as particularly curious and that is not encouraged in you, then you won't do as well, typically. Mm. So if we want everyone to have a chance, we need a supportive environment that has a really rich, varied understanding of what curiosity does and what it looks like and can support that. And I think that that's, that's not just like, let's add a few more sort of classes or more kind of different exercises. It's a really fundamental shift in how we think about learning. I feel that our education system is biased towards people who have a proclivity to do well on multiple choice question tests. <laughs> like that is the standard. If you could take multiple choice question with test well, that is the standard for being a good student and everyone else is deviant. I'm actually not good at multiple choice question tests, despite having probably taken more than most humans on this planet, maybe even more than you both. And that's actually how we're assessed as physicians. Even 10 years out, we take this competency test and you would think it'd be Maybe someone observing me practice clinically in the emergency room, but it's actually a multiple choice question test. And that's how I, the academy decides I could move on the next 10 years and safely take care of patients, which I think is a little bit crazy. That's amazing. Yeah, I have a similar issue in philosophy. One of the things that our standard is is more of an essay question, but you should be able to come up with a five paragraph essay in which you have an introduction, you have three body paragraphs where you make three different points, and then you have a conclusion. Overall, you've made one argument, right? <laughs> Something very straightforward. And this is, you know, 
every single class multiple times this is what is required and i remember a student in one of my freshman seminars so it's just it's about 20 freshmen it's typically an interdisciplinary seminar this particular student decided I suppose to surprise me, they know that I work on curiosity and they turned in this um, this creative nonfiction essay in relationship to my prompt, which in some sense addresses the prompt I offered to the class, but in another sense really didn't. And I just, I remember just sitting and sitting and sitting with this, thinking, how do I grade this? And ultimately deciding, wow, this shows me that grading just doesn't really work <laughs> because I think this student deserves an A and none of the things that I'm supposed to be evaluating or trained to evaluate were in there. Mm -hmm. And that just says, that's my own sort of story as a teacher, trying to rethink what it is that curiosity looks like and what it is that we assume it should look like in a philosophy student, for example. I'm sure there's other quandaries in physics and neuroscience. Yeah, there was a really great student in the last class that I taught who, instead of writing the clear, you know, structured essay, gave a story. It was an expansion of Alice in Wonderland, actually. So it had dialogue and, you know, magic and all kinds of things in it. And it demonstrated exactly what we were talking about in the class so perfectly. And I was mm. like, this is like, yeah so impressive. You clearly know what we're doing and you've been able to communicate it in this extremely convincing way, but not at all in the way that would be typically required by a class. Mm. It's great. I want to hit on a thread that you had mentioned before, Danny, about the relationship between curiosity and I think happiness, you said before that. Mm -hmm. What is that relationship? Yeah, that's a really good question. So it's a relationship between curiosity and flourishing. So having flourishing, having okay. sort of a flourishing life. And at the moment, I want to be clear that we don't know whether this is a causal relationship. We know that it's correlative. So people who score high on flourishing measures also tend to score high on curiosity measures. So we don't yet know if we were able to change one, would we change the other? And that's kind of something that's motivating a lot of current work in the science of curiosity right now. But it is very tantalizing if, if yeah. there is such a causal relationship. And there's also a relationship you said between curiosity and depression. Yes. And it's an, an anti-correlation. Interestingly, there's also some evidence to suggest that the depression is associated with taking sort of smaller steps in a knowledge space. So asking questions that may be more proximal conceptually to where you currently are, whereas individuals who are are not as depressed tend to take larger steps. And this is evidence that we have from studying how people browse Wikipedia. So the online encyclopedia, uh -huh. because we can watch how people are browsing in this one particular study and understand whether people are taking really short steps going from, I don't know, water, let's say rain to clouds versus taking larger steps going from rain to medieval literature, right? Mm. And so we can we can sort of map out exactly how distant those steps are. And that's related to measures of depression. What about curiosity and creativity? Because sometimes I feel these two terms are interchange. Yeah, they are very consistently. And in fact, sometimes, you know, I'll say I work on curiosity and someone later in the conversation will be like, well, you work on creativity. So... <laughs> So I do think that these two terms tend to come up uh, fairly often. At the moment, I see creativity more in line with the dancer style of curiosity. So I would see creativity as a kind of 
curiosity, but that you can be curious without necessarily being creative. Mm. Sometimes I, I think I routinely do this. I consider people curious or non-curious, and maybe that's bad. I put them in these binary zeros and ones. I go, oh, that's a curious person. I was like, and then I was like, oh, that's not a curious person. I kind of, or that person's not curious. I kind of roll my eyes. And why do I do that? I don't think that's a good thing to do because it assumes that some people are curious and some people aren't. And maybe there's an inability for that non-curious person to become more curious or inherently that curious people are better than non-curious people. Yeah. This is super important, and it makes me go back to some of this conversation about curiosity and depression or curiosity and flourishing, because on the one hand, we really do want to think about creating conditions for curiosity and for flourishing. We both do see incredible value in both of those things, but we also want to say, you know, there's a lot more that we don't know about curiosity. There's a lot of ways in which we believe it shows up in in human beings, both in their kind of mental space and in their social interactions that we don't yet understand. And we want to ask, well, okay, so right at this point, people with depression are are sort of, it's hard to see sometimes their curiosity, according to the studies that we've read. But maybe let's just like pause there and say, okay, let's study folks with depression, ask them how they ask their questions, how is it they explore their world, how do they map things together, how do they negotiate their relationship with their own depression and with their own sort of other folks who are important in their lives and their own aspirations, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's so much more interesting to say it's probably there. And mm-hmm. what does it look like there than to say, oh, it's just not there. You know, that I understand this is a more common impetus to just suggest, oh, you're curious or you're not curious. But it's so much more interesting to be like, oh, it's probably there. Where is it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that helps us both in our relationships with other just other people in our in our life, but certainly as teachers. Yeah, I think another example where this just is very clear to me is in elementary school classrooms. So there may be a a student or, well, any age classroom, maybe there may be a student who has many questions in their mind, but is really introverted and extremely shy for all kinds of reasons, maybe. And the teacher, you know, if they were counting the number of questions that students were asking and using the number of questions as a measure of curiosity, they would say this, this kid is not curious, right? But it's just because the kid is not verbalizing, doesn't feel Mm. comfortable verbalizing in that particular environment has nothing to do with what's actually going on in their minds, right? So I think it's really, I love this point of just thinking really carefully about how people are curious in Mm. ways that may not be what immediately comes to your mind if you wanted to quantify it. And maybe more of what you're experiencing there is a, is a resonance between how you practice your curiosity mm. and how this other person does. And you're sort of vibing off each other in that sense. And you say, oh, you're curious, like I'm curious, uh, you yeah. know, but then maybe it's that you share a style rather than that you share curiosity wholesale. So if you're listening and want to know how to be more creative, you should definitely buy the book. But I want to ask you both, how do you design the conditions in our personal life to be more creative? Do you have any practical tips on that? That's a great question. The immediate thing that comes to mind is how I do this in my scientific work, which isn't exactly the same as in my personal life, but I think actually they're related. So I want to start with with my scientific work. So what I will often do is when I go to a scientific conference, 
I'll often choose to go to the rooms where there are going to be talks in areas that are wildly different than my own, Mm -hmm. rather than the ones that are in my particular space. I recognize that it's always important to keep up to speed on what's going on in my area. But when I go to a conference, I really want to hear something wildly different. And what I love is that when I go into some of these different spaces where people are asking questions differently, I am more likely to have ideas, really novel ideas about where I could take my work next. So I think this is a action of kind of exposing myself to different ways of thinking that Mm. feels really fruitful and very generative in my scientific work. If we take that idea into the personal space, I think it translates really nicely, which is where, you know, you would choose to read books, listen to podcasts, hang out with people who are really different than you. And being exposed to that difference, Mm -hmm. you automatically become more curious because you're like, that's not how I thought about it, right? How do you think about it? Yeah. I don't know, Perry. I love that. Yeah. I was also, what jumped to mind was travel in multiple worlds, Mm -hmm. which is very similar to what you're suggesting, Danny. And I would go back to the style of the dancer, right? So if being more creative is this form of curiosity that really links together things that wouldn't have come together, then you have to be traveling into these different worlds. And if we're going to use network language, you have to move to different hubs of knowledge and of knowledge making practices. You have to move between these hubs rather than staying in one and, you know, laying down roots only there. And as you're doing those sorts of movements, I mean, for me, it's more of reading. I like to read things that are wildly different, where it's very clear the two things would never have cited each other, you know? Mm. And then I just like to pause there and see what happens in the mix up in my mind. And what's important too, is to have a break Mm. so that whatever you've thrown into your mind from these very disparate places has a chance to start weaving itself together. If you're constantly stuffing your brain with things and activities and rushing from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and crashing and getting up and rushing again, or every time you pause to wait for whatever it is you're waiting for, you pick up your phone. If you're filling your mind that full all the time, it's very hard for it to do its to do its magic of weaving things together that we're that we're very disparate. Rather mm-hmm. things stay disparate. So that's one thing I would say. So travel in multiple worlds and then give your mind a chance to just breathe, to just mm-hmm. have some space. I think that enhances creativity as well as curiosity. Yeah. I want to read another quote you say for us, curiosity is a network practice, a relational practice. It works by linking ideas, facts, perceptions, sensations, and data points together. I love that. And when you say a relational practice, does that apply to that relating to other groups or individuals unlike yourself and how our curiosity might be informed by that? Practically speaking, you know, I, I like to put myself into different either professional groups or social groups that they are totally not like me. And But I feel that I get more curious about certain things. And instead of hanging out with people just like me all the time, sometimes it's a little bit uncomfortable to do. But then when I was reading your book, I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of like this network relational practice that my curiosity, I think, has been driven by me going into these different communities. Yeah. It's interesting that you're making that connection. I think that it is really important to bridge different social communities and gather new information that way and new ways of thinking, new ways of questioning. But maybe even at a meta level, it's 
what we are doing in asking how we think and using network science to ask how we think is actually tightly related to how network science as a field has been used to understand social networks. So actually, mm -hmm. if you like back up a couple decades, network science is a relatively new field of scholarly inquiry that has traditionally been used to understand social networks. So understanding how people are connected with one another but it's increasingly being used to understand the mind. So mm. how ideas are connected to one another. So it asks questions like what makes us move from what we know to something that is new, maybe a new discovery. What happens when our minds wander from one idea to another idea? Or how do we walk through the connections between ideas when we try to communicate them with one another or share them with one another? And that connective nature is really clear to us among other people. Like in the social space, we know here, I'm a friend with this person who's wildly different from me. I'm a friend with this person who's wildly different from me. But in the idea space, sometimes it can be a little trickier to say, well, how is an idea connected to another idea? Mm -hmm. So I like to give the example of what's called a free association task, which is where you look around your, your room and you pick something that you notice, and then you ask your mind to move from that thing to something else and you walk through a couple. So if we did that really quickly here, maybe you'll be able to see what the connections are. So let's say down next to me is my backpack. So we could say, okay, well, I'll start with backpack. And then what comes next to my mind? The next thing that comes to my mind is book and then writing, pen, tally marks, a ruler, a queen, Queen Elizabeth, waving, waves in water, the ocean, maybe debris and climate change, maybe glaciers, and then warmth, mm. and then a gentle smile or sparkling eyes, children, fairy tales, collected stories, maybe collected essays. That brings me to Virginia Woolf, who's a key player in our book, which then leads me on to various other things, right? So in a couple seconds here, I've gone from backpack to through climate change and glaciers to Virginia Woolf. It feels like a vast space, but when you walk carefully through all of them, you know that there was a relationship between mm. each of them that makes that step very reasonable. So that's what network science is sort of bringing to the story here, which it is, what are those connections that we are making? How do we build up these structures and then walk through them? And how do we all do that differently? And how exciting is it when we meet somebody else who does it very, mm. very differently from ourselves? And historically, it's really interesting to think about curiosity as typically being associated with the eyes in this mm. context, that I want to see this, I'm interested in this, or Adam and Eve, they see an apple of some sort and they're curious, let's taste it. But I think what's interesting is to think about the other senses and the ways in which perhaps curiosity is not only practiced, but might learn something from the other senses. And when we come back to curiosity as a network practice or a relational practice, not only between ideas, but also between people, it's really helpful to think about listening as a curious practice, as a way in which we can be curious with one another that lends new styles, new architectures to our knowledge, new nodes to our knowledge network. Thinking about listening, and you talked about, you know, with people who are really different from us, if we start thinking about a lot of the social and political polarization mm -hmm. in our world today, listening as a practice of curiosity is a fundamentally sort of network or relational approach. And I think it has a lot to bear on our particular moment these days. I have so many more questions, but we are out of time. My final question to you is you have literal hand-drawn sketches 
throughout the book that you all did and included them and they're good, but you're not an artist, right? <laughs> but you're, you're comfortable enough to put these sketches in there that I maybe would not have put if I were writing a book, what compelled you to do that? <laughs> yeah, there are two kinds of visual media in the book. So we do have an artist, Puna Mystery, who created frontispieces for every chapter. Beautiful. And they're so beautiful. Very gorgeous, very artistic, you know, very well crafted, took a lot of time. And then we also, yes, have these hands-drawn sketches that I did, particularly in the scientific chapters. And they are to illustrate some of the ideas, but also to illustrate the sort of manner of curiosity. Curiosity in this relational way is here's an idea. I'm going to dash it off in a short moment of time and share it with you. And then maybe you'll draw something and say, oh, is it, does it happen over here? Does it happen over here? That's something that we use as scientists very frequently to communicate our ideas. And I think it's an important recognition that the ways in which we are curious are not only with words, they're also with images. Mm -hmm. Just like we're not just curious with our eyes, we can also be curious with our ears. I think we want to open up the spaces in which we ask these kinds of questions. And so bridging the linguistic and the diagrammatic is one way of doing that. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I love your book, Curious Minds, A Power Connection, out September 6th. Order it now. Really inspiring. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. That was my conversation with Perry and Danny. You can find them both on Twitter. Perry is at P-E-R-R-Y-Z-U-R-N. And Danny can be found at D-A-N-I-S-B-A-S-S-E-T-T. And reach out to me on social media on Twitter. I can be found at B-O-N-K-U on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by the great Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston. Cover designed by Eden Liu. See you next week. <laughs>